And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this, is, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I'm hoping in here I have some uh, fellow logophiles. That is to say, people that kind of love words. And uh, maybe you're like me and maybe you have it now or, uh, you know, over your life had one of those calendars that's like word of the day and you just like learning new words because I have one for you today. And that word is denouman. Denouman. If you were to see it written out, actually, it looks like denouement, but it's actually pronounced denouman. And what denouman means is it's the culmination of a story. When you get to the denouman, it means that you have not only reached the climax, usually that word is used when somebody is not only referring to just that, that high point of the story, but it's that point of the story when everything is resolved. That piece of information comes into view where all the conflict of the story gets taken care of. Every loose end gets tied up. Um, honestly, my favorite kinds of stories and my favorite kinds of movies are the, are the ones that are a little more of the, the thinkers, the mind benders, so that when you're watching it and you're, you're seeing what's happening and you're coming to conclusions and you're you know, you're, it draws you in with the storyline, but then at the end, there's something that happens where it makes you rethink everything else that had already taken place. In fact, I would even say that the best ones are the ones that after the movie's even over, you're sitting there thinking about it, or you're talking to somebody else, and you're like, okay, hold on a second, wait a minute there. Do you remember when and you go back and you review these scenes that took place and things start to pop. Things start to become clear about what had taken place before and that all came together at one particular moment in the narrative. And that moment is what is referred to as the denouement. And what we have today in this episode of the death of, the, uh, of Christ on the cross in Mark chapter 16 is, in fact, a denouement, the death of Christ on the cross. Everything seems like it's going exactly the wrong way. Everything. Everything is going wrong right down to the very last second. Except, of course, it's not the last second. Now, from the viewpoint of the apostles that are watching all of this take place in front of them, even though they've been following Jesus for several years now, and they've watched his miracles, they've heard his teaching, they've, they've been right there when he's done these things, he's cast out demons, he's brought people back from the dead, they've witnessed his entire public ministry. Now they've watched what's taken place as his demise has continued all the way to the point of being 
on the cross. He's hanging right there on the cross. He's in these final moments. That's what the apostles see, that these are the final seconds, and everything is going wrong. Nothing appears to be going right. In fact, that would be the viewpoint not only of the apostles, that would be the viewpoint of the soldiers that were right there and that were participating and looking at him. That would be the viewpoint of Pilate, who said, fine, and tried his best to do his little act of washing his hands. Hey, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. He also would be thinking that these are the final seconds. The religious leaders who, who put together the whole you know, fake trial and then forced it onto Pilate so that he would make the declaration that would result on, uh, on Jesus hanging on the cross, that would result in Jesus' death, it looks like these are the final seconds and that everything is going wrong. It would look like everything is going wrong and that these are the final seconds to the demonic realm and to the evil one himself. Well, this story, the story of Scripture, the story that God has told through his word and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus' life, is not like any other story. This is a story about reversal and deliverance. This story that's taking place is about all of this fat part that's behind where we've been reading that is always looking forward to some future hope that's going to take place to a salvation that we presently possess. All of those things are pointing forward, 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 but they're pointing forward to a particular moment in time. And that is what is taking place right here. They're pointing forward, and what's taking place is it's a movement from alienation to reconciliation. All of those prophets of the past, the stories of the past that we're pointing forward were always based on a hope of what would take place someday. And that day has come. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago and you heard uh, my brother Mark preach, he, uh, he preached on Psalm 1, and then if you actually stayed for the uh, pastoral postscript, he went through and kind of talked about uh, the, the design of the book of Psalms and um, two of the things that we see through the entirety of the book of Psalms is this thread of lament and suffering and simultaneously but yet at different times and somehow overlapping, we also see this thread of praise and glory. These, these things seem to be happening together. And you know that. If you've read the Psalms, you know that that's how it goes. These, these psalmists pour out their hearts in lamentation and in suffering, and yet somehow they transition to praise and glory. And in fact, uh, their lamentations... Uh, refer, uh, when they talk about the future Messiah, they even refer to Jesus, well, they don't know it's going to be Jesus, but they look at, they characterize that future Messiah as a righteous sufferer or a suffering servant. And within these psalms and within this prophetic literature, it gives us information about enemies that are going to operate with deceit and oppression that it talks about in these psalms that those same enemies are going to sit in ambush to, earn, uh, to murder the innocent. And then it gets even a little more precise in many of the psalms. And specifically, they talk about the fact that the Messiah is going to be delivered to the hands of sinners. And that, they're going to, uh, that his enemies are going to seek testimony to try to secure a conviction of, of death, a death sentence against Christ. And in fact, within these psalms as well, it declares that these false witnesses will testify. And it also talks about the fact that Jesus, when he's before his accusers, will be silent. All of these things are contained within the psalms and within other prophetic liter literature. And they're building this storyline. We see the conflict over, uh, uh, basically over the time that it's written, over thousands of years of how it's being described, all of this conflict that's building. And here we know that every one of those things has taken place. It's all happened. We've been making our way through 
the passion account of Jesus on his way to the cross, and we've seen that every one of those things have taken place. Well, not only has it taken place to that detail, we even know that the Psalms talk about the fact that Jesus's garments are going to be divided, or that the onlookers are going to shake their heads and wag them at him in shame. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Messiah, how shameful it is. Every bit of that has come to pass. That's where this is. The conflict is increasing. The humiliation is only increasing. The stakes don't appear like they could be any higher and that the end is that close. And even though it would almost seem like right there, just, just right there while Jesus is hanging on the cross, that there, you couldn't fit much more in there. But the reality is that there is more. And that even though there are only a few verses that talk about that physical experience that Jesus is happening on Golgotha, on that place of the skull, on that skull hill. He's already suffered the humiliation in the city of Jerusalem. He's been escorted out. We've talked in detail about all the things that are taking place that have resulted in the Messiah hanging on the cross right there in front of him. All there is left to do really is just die. Like they're right there at the end. But there is more, and we see what's happening in verse 33, where the first thing that's happening in that space is that God is, in his judgment on sin, that he is pouring out on his son on the cross, that creation itself is responding. Many times throughout Scripture, we see that one of the ways that God demonstrates his displeasure, one of the ways that he, uh, one of the physical ways that he shows that he is casting judgment is in darkness, by creating darkness. Or to use language that Pastor Nick has used several times in previous sermons, there's a sense of decreation taking place. God is rolling back what he has been, uh, what he has been building and what he's been moving forward. He puts a stop to it, and he does exactly the opposite, and he actually delivers darkness. And we see that in Amos, uh, who is kind of known for some of his judgment language. And in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, And on that day, so he's talking about judgment that is going to be coming. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That is the specific judgment that is going to be coming. In talking about judgment, In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 29, it says, You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You'll also remember, because it just wasn't that long ago, that Pastor Nick preached about, uh, uh, within the plagues, the penultimate plague, that next to last plague. Remember, the plagues are just ramping up in intensity, and right before it actually gets to the point of the firstborn dying, that plague is the plague of darkness. That was God's judgment. That's what was taking place. God was judging the Egyptians by sending this intense darkness. And so when you think through all of these things, that this is the way, this is one of the methods that God uses to judge, to send judgment, and the fact that you have Amos saying that there will be, ju- there will be darkness at noon, you have Deuteronomy saying that there will be darkness at noontime, and it will, that, that, the, um, that the one subjected to that judgment will be oppressed, and that there will be no one to help, And then also we see that in the plague that was sent to the Egyptians that it would last three days. And then what do we have right here in verse 33? And when the sixth hour had come, you probably know this already. There may be a note in your Bible. That is noon. The sixth hour is noon. 
Verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So what do we see? We see that the prophecy that Amos was talking about, about darkness at noon, has been fulfilled. The uh, judgment that's being described in Deuteronomy about uh, the judgment of God bringing darkness at noon, which has been fulfilled on the one that is oppressed, which has been fulfilled in Christ, and the one which has no one to help, that is fulfilled in Christ. And then the plague that was given to the Egyptians to last three days lasts exactly three hours in the judgment that is poured out on Christ. So we see creation responding to the, uh, the act of judgment that is being poured out onto his son. And then from there, we see in verse 34 the response of the Savior. He has something to say. In verse 34, Jesus says, at the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly abandoned. We're talking about that space just closest to the end, and there he is, after, on top of everything else that he's experienced, he has now experienced abandonment. We don't know how exactly this plays out. Jesus never sacrifices his divinity. He's never not God, and yet at the same time, in this judgment, there is a separation that takes place that we could not possibly understand. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what sin does. It separates you from God. And so what we have here with Jesus on the cross and taking that judgment that is being poured out on him, we have what's stated in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So in becoming sin for us, he had to endure the separation from God, a judgment that we could not possibly fathom. This, here is something that, that is extremely important to understand. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not just expressing what's going on in his heart. There is definitely a reality to the fact, like I'm, I, I'm pointing to here, that there is some kind of incalculable pain that takes place in this judgment coming from the Father directed to the Son that creates this separation. And it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say something that would express the deepest possible emotion for, that, for enduring that kind of pain. And of course, what is he going to do? He's going to leverage a biblical phrase to communicate that by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's not all what it's used for. I don't know about you. Have you ever read that and, and had some kind of strange conflict in your mind where you're like, I know, I can't, I can't imagine how bad that is, how difficult that is. We have, no, um, we have no connection to, we have nothing to base that kind of pain on, but he's still the son of God. Like, what, how is he forsaken? Like, how could he say that? And it, it, that, it just seems like what Jesus is doing is expressing utter defeat. That's what it sounds like. And somehow that, that just seems incongruous with who Jesus is and what it is that he's actually accomplishing. Well, I want to help you with that if you've ever thought those things through, which is that the words accurately reflect what's going on, but what Jesus is not is devoid of hope. Jesus is not devoid of hope. And it would seem if you just grabbed that phrase right out of Scripture and you just looked at that and you say, well, look what Jesus says, you would say, well, man, here, this is basically exhibit A for a hopeless person. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, what, what more could you possibly say to express that you are completely and utterly without hope? Well, this is what I would like to do. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22, because this is where Psalm 22, or yes, yeah, Psalm 22 is exactly where this comes from, this original phrase authored uh, by David. And I want to show you a few elements from Psalm 22 and how that tracks, how that is parallel, how that supports what is already taking place with Jesus at this particular time. So first of all, we know that by Jesus saying this, it is the first line of Psalm 22. And I'll tell you now, what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus is, by saying this line, by crying out from the cross using these words, he's actually expressing not just the sentiment of the phrase, but he's actually expressing everything that that psalm contains. So, not only do we have what it is that he said in verse 1, if you go down to verse, uh, verses 6 to 8, it says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Is that consistent with Jesus' state right now? The answer is yes. All those, all who see me mock me and they make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Is that consistent with what's taking place with Jesus? The answer is not only yes, but we see that that is precisely, that's not like philosophically, generally consistent with what Mark says. That is precisely consistent with what's taking place. Then in verse 8, it says, He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that, does that not sound amazingly similar to those that were right next to Christ that said, You saved others. Can you not save yourself? Or the bystanders that were saying, hey, let's see if he brings himself down from the cross. All of these things are consistent with what is being authored in Psalm 22. Then you go down to verses 14 and 15, and we see that, 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 that this verbiage is consistent with his physical uh, status. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws and lay me in the dust of death. Again, more verbiage that right there is consistent with what is actually happening in real time to Jesus, to his physical body, as he hangs on the cross. And then as you go on down, to verses 16 to 18, it also reflects what is consistent with what's taking place with him and his situation. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When Jesus is declaring those first lines of Psalm 22, all of this baggage, everything that uh, Psalm 22 is about is associated with Jesus' experience at that time. Now, here's why that's important. First of all, I'm trying to put at ease any sense whatsoever that this declaration by Jesus is somehow this hope, hopeless, all right, I'm, I'm so broken that I, I, I have no hope even in the Father because, after all, the Father has forsaken me. That's not the case. And let me show you a couple of things that are worth noting within the psalm then that are carried along, that are inside the same baggage of everything else that I just read that are consistent with what it is that he is experiencing. Look at verses 12 and 13. These are the types of verses that we just go, uh, those are spiritual like stuff, and we just read them and go right past them and don't think much more. Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, I know it was a long time ago. 
but I preached when we were making our way through Mark and Jesus was ending his public ministry and he was about to head down to Jerusalem. He didn't head south to Jerusalem first. Instead, he went north to Mount Hermon where he said at the base of that mountain, he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, we talked about it at that time that Jesus was poking the bear. He was agitating the evil one himself and to say, your gates of hell are not going to withstand what I am about to do. And that mountain, in that region, that region is the region of Bashan. This is what I'm getting at, is that the reference to the strong bulls of Bashan is a reference to the evil spirits that rebelled against God. Evil spirits in Genesis that rebelled are, whether it's metaphorically, or, uh, but, but the, the author, the Jewish author, David in this case, is making this statement inspired by the Holy Spirit that when he says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, they open wide their mouths at me. This is like the demonic realm themselves as Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross when he is just moments away from death itself are at his throat. They are surrounding him. Their mouths are gaping open. They are getting everything that they want. And then, if that reference maybe is not as direct to you, here's one that probably has a little more correlation or a little more familiarity with you. The devil is a prowling lion roaming. He is a roaring lion seeking who he may destroy. Does that sound familiar? That's the description of the devil. Look at, look at the verses we just read. After talking about the strong bulls and that they open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. The evil supernatural realm and the evil one himself is right there in the presence of Christ at his face, wanting everything that's happening. Yes, yes, this is all working out according to plan. So in addition to the humiliation that Jesus had experienced, in addition to the judgment of the Father himself pouring that out in which we see uh, taking place or reflected in the darkness from, uh, from the Father in, in creation's response, we have the demons surrounding Christ himself opening wide their mouths and the adversary in Christ's face as a roaring lion. Now this is what is so helpful to, to keep in mind, if all of this baggage is coming along for the ride with what Jesus is declaring with that first phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, then there's another part of this psalm that comes along for the ride as well, and that is what takes place halfway through verse 21. Because you know what it is? God answers the call. Halfway, so uh, the first half of verse 21. Now, bearing in mind the, the, um, the visual that I have given you, save me from the mouth of the lion. And now watch the change in tone. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And we can go right on down through this, down at verse 24. For he has not, so speaking of the Father, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That is Christ. He is bearing the affliction of the afflicted and is not abhorred. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. Are you seeing this? Those who seek him, so the one that's afflicted, shall praise Yahweh. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. 
So wait a minute. All of this stuff is coming together. Jesus is on the cross. All of these things are happening. He seems like he's right there, the final seconds of complete and utter victory for the evil one. And it's saying instead that all the ends of the earth, not just Jews, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. This is unbelievable. David, the very model of the the supreme Jew, right? He is the Jewish king. That is some kind, some version of David's offspring is what these Jews, these Jewish leaders were looking for from the very beginning. Give us another David. Why? Because David represented the might and the strength and the domination of, of the nation of Israel, and yet it's that king, that King David, that is now, that here is authoring a psalm that talks about kingship that rules over all the nations. And then skipping down to the final verse of Psalm 22, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let me use some different verbiage that, again, may be a little more familiar and that you will see that ties directly to this, that he has done it. Because in this verse back in Mark, where it's, uh, that we were just looking at, it says, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. In the parallel account in John, do you know what he records that Jesus says? In addition to this, it is finished. Sounds eerily similar to Psalm 22 saying, he has done it. Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is communicating all of that stuff that is contained within Psalm 22. Now, that's What's going on in Jesus' declaration there, in that, in that cry that he gave in Aramaic? Then we see in verses 35 and 36 how the crowd responds. Uh, let me tell you right now, how do you figure they respond? Do you think they go, oh, Psalm 22, and look at everything that probably goes along with what he just said? No, they don't have a clue. They don't know what they're doing, honestly. So in verses 35 and 36, we see how the crowd uh, responds to, to, to what's taking place, and they cannot come to a rational conclusion. Really, that's, they, they can't put it all together. They see that there's been darkness for three hours. They hear Jesus crying out. They hear him recite a psalm of great suffering, and the only conclusion that they can come to is, hey, maybe Elijah's going to come and save him. Now, it's not preposterous why they would come to that conclusion. Remember that Elijah was one of, uh, I believe, only two that never actually experienced physical death. Remember, he was taken up in a whirlwind. So you've got that in the background. All right, well, Elijah never died. And then also remember that there were prophecies that said that before the Messiah would come, that Elijah would come. Now, we know that that was John the Baptist, they didn't know that. You know, at the time, they, don't, you know, they, they didn't have that connection. So you've got these people that are standing there and that are watching this and are experiencing all this, and the conclusion that they come to is, well, hey, well, maybe, maybe Elijah is going to show up and save this man. Now, and so as a result, they grab some sour wine and they give it to him. Now, what, this is what we don't know from it, okay? I, I looked at it, I didn't... I, what we don't know is, was the sour wine given to Jesus by... This is my simplification. By bad people to see if they were going to get a show. That's one way to look at it. Like, hey, let, let's give him this stuff to make him last a little longer to see if we're going to see a miracle. Like, hey, this, this could be good. And so they're sticking it to Jesus a little bit more. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that, you know, if we want, you know, air quotes, good people that are trying to provide some form of relief. They're watching all this, and they're saying, oh, my goodness, you know, is there anything we can do for this guy? And they're trying to give him 
the sour wine to, to provide some form of relief. I don't have a 100% answer for you. I think the main point of all of that is they just didn't have a clue. They're looking at all this stuff happening and, um, you know, like, like somebody that just don't, doesn't know how to respond. I, I even think of, you know, at the Transfiguration, the, uh, uh, Peter, James, and, and John, they're like, well, they didn't know what to do, so they're like, oh, do we make some booths or something? And it expressly says they didn't know what to do. And I think we have some sense of that here as well, where they're like, hey, uh, give them some wine, and let's see if, if Elijah is going to show up. But then we get to verse 37. Then we get to our denouement, all right? Our denouement, our culmination, our resolution. And this continues to show us that we are not talking about a Savior that despite carrying the load of the judgment of the Father, that he was not destitute of hope. This right here is where... In John's account, Jesus says, it is, in, it is finished. But in our account here in Mark, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is like that marathoner that just gives every last conceivable ounce of energy to push past the finish line and just drops. Like a just a bag of bones. Everything is given. He gives out this final cry. And then this is what is at play. Back in Mark 10, at verse 45, it reads, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then when he was instituting the Lord's Supper in Mark 14, 24, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So what we see right here with Jesus uttering this loud cry, that is the moment that he is giving his life as a ransom for many. It's like you've got this whole scripture and all this stuff that's going on. You can put your finger on it. It is right there. Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. This is the denouement. This is the resolution to absolutely everything (coughs) that was taking place. This is that transition from alienation to reconciliation. It happened right there. And Jesus is dead. Think about this for a second. Judgment has been executed, carried out by God himself and by man. And that's the moment where we have the resolution. This is the question that pops into my head. How long did it take? How long did it take the ravening and roaring devil that opened wide his mouth? How long did it take the father of lies to put together that that loud cry and that breathing his last was the sound of the nail in his coffin? There he is at Jesus' throat getting everything that he wants. How long did it take before he realized what just happened? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The devil heard, this is what I suspect, the devil heard exactly what he wanted. All he heard was defeat. He heard hopelessness. He heard defeat. But to the believer today, that is a declaration of victory. Right there was Jesus plundering the strong man's house in that last breath and in giving up his life. And then in verse 38, we see that once again, creation responds, or maybe a a better way to, to say it is a created thing responds, or we see what it is that God does to a created thing because it reflects 
in an earthly human world, the reality of what was taking place in a heavenly realm, and that was that the curtain was torn from top to bottom because it was reflecting that the time of the physical temple was over. It was done in one move. I mean, even that's brilliant. How could you demonstrate that an entire era, millennia of time, that had been pointing forward to this particular moment, how could you communicate just like that, that it had been accomplished? What better way than to take the thing that was their prized possession and to tear, the, tear that curtain in two and to demonstrate that no longer is God's presence contained in that temple? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 reads, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's temple dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That transition from the temple to you being the temple was right there from verse 37 and then the demonstration that followed in verse 38 of the curtain being torn into from top to bottom. Back in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, it, just, it talks about the gathering, the ingathering or the gathering of all nations. Jesus along the way, remember, said that, he is his, his, that uh, it was a, a, a house of prayer for all nations. His children were not restricted to one ethnic group, and this post-temple, post-Jewish era had an immediate effect. This is the beauty of how this is all so succinct, and yet all of these things in the order that they happen are just revealing this. That denouement takes place in verse 37 that Jesus gives out a cry and he breathes his last, and then things just start to fall into place. The first thing is the created thing that the, the, the temple curtain was torn in two, and then this whole idea of the all nations, and that this is a post-temple, post-Jewish era, that it had an immediate effect. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is unbelievable. Mark is painting a picture for us. He is putting you, the reader, there. You are looking at Christ on the cross Golgotha, you are looking at his dead body standing from behind the centurion. You don't get to see his face. We don't know his name. We have no idea what his identity was, but we're standing right there close enough to hear him say the words, truly this man was the son of God. Right there is our first, what would appear to be our first Gentile convert in this new age. He even uses the phrase son of God. A Roman wouldn't even say that. That's not, that's not part of the Greek thinking. That's a Jewish thing to say, to talk about son of God, and yet here we have a Gentile that the moment that it happens, it's like, there's like that pause. The victory was won, but in such an unusual way, and nobody knows what's happening, and yet the first person to recognize it is a centurion that says, truly, this man was the son of God. It's that first leaf from the seed, the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed that was planted. It's that first little boop sprout coming through the soil of what is going to be a mighty tree that is what is going to be a mighty nation, a family of God that comes from all nations. So the additional verses that follow in verses 40 and 41 that talk about Mary Magdalene and, and Mary, the mother of James, and uh, others there, I, this is my assessment, is that by mentioning these other Jewish friends that have been along uh, the way with Jesus, that have been faithful to Jesus, that we have no doubt about their, um, about their commitment to Christ, they're right there. And I think what we're seeing is a picture this, this is a, a new picture of God's family. 
It's not tied to religious leaders and the temple, and it includes this guy, this centurion that presumably is somehow tied to what's going on to Jesus being on the cross, even if he's only there as a, as a lowly worker. And right there along with him are these women who clearly love Christ. No more is there Jew and Gentile. This is a new family. Now, when you think through all of these things and you, you roll them around in your head and you get a, a little bit better grasp of all that has taken place, you think through the perfection of God's plan, of how this was executed, how it was carried out, uh, the exquisite nature of the timing of everything right down to the evil one thing he, thinking he's getting exactly what he wants and that Jesus in what he's saying is even backing that up. And yet it turns out that he was saying so much more than that. And you add to that the obedience of the son to, so that that could be accomplished his obedience to the humiliation, his obedience to being subjected to death. What a slap it is in the face when people say, well, Christians, man, what do you mean the only way? How is that the only way? Are you kidding me? This is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the only way. And for those that are trite, and cliche and think that, well, many roads lead there. The only, the, the best description in scripture about many roads is, is, is wide is the path to, destru- to destruction. Narrow is the path to salvation. And today is that day of salvation. If you have heard this and you realize that you have not repented of your sin, then you must do that today. Repent of your sin. Throw your hope onto the son who accomplished, who took the penalty of the sin on that that cross. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Be like the centurion who, who, seeing Jesus die in that way, said, truly, this was the son of God. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is all weighty stuff. This is, I mean, if, you know, just picturing these things and what Christ was going, you know, the plan and what Christ was subjecting himself to or was willing to be subjected to. But it still begs the question, well, what does that mean to my everyday life? And I want to point out a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me paraphrase that for you. All of this stuff that I just talked about took place. If you are a child of God and have repented of your sin and placed your faith in that work of Christ that we just looked at, Then he did that so that, and I'm in verse 15, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ who went through it? Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? It's a real question to real things. It's a theological question to be sure, but you have got to evaluate that question in light of your choices in your life. In the same chapter, just moving down to verses 18 to 20, it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Remember, we just watched, we put our finger on the point when it crossed from alienation to reconciliation. So, who, who, uh, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, we're back to our responsibility, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is the gospel message. Therefore, so here you go. You want to know what to do with all this? There you go. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal. God is making his appeal 
through you. And so this is Paul that's writing this to them. He sees himself as an ambassador for Christ. So the result is that he says to them, we, so we, the ambassadors for Christ, implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So there it is. We examined what Jesus endured in the precise and perfect plan of God to pour out his judgment on he who was righteous and became sin for us, ultimately, so that we would not live for ourselves, but that we would live for God so that we would be ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. So I ask you to reflect, are you an ambassador of the message of reconciliation? Think about your week. Think about your month. Think about 2022. Are you an ambassador for Christ? Can you legitimately answer yes to that question? Can you legitimately say, I'm not living for myself, I am living for Christ? We're not pieces of Christian China in a Christian China cabinet that is saved and set apart for the special occasions where everything has to be exactly right. You know, that, that thing that the grandma or whatever would never use, like, oh, we don't use that stuff unless, like, everything is exactly perfect, the right guest, the right meal, at the right time, for the right occasion, then we bring it out. That is not what the Christian does. You are an ambassador for Christ. We're not in a china cabinet. <clears throat> We're the tumbler. We're the movie cup, the plastic movie cup that you grab every time. That's the message of reconciliation that you have to take to a dying world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can understand more about this examination of what took place in those final moments of Christ on the cross. Thank you for not only giving us the truth, but giving it to us in the flavor of Mark, and that we get to see it the way that he laid it out, and so that we can have a better grasp of what Christ was doing on the cross, and, and maybe even more so what it was he was communicating when he said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And that even in that moment, he was not without hope, and that, Lord, we too are not without hope. Help us, Lord, to be ambassadors for Christ that take the message of reconciliation to the rest of the world and not living for ourselves. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.